Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Today, we will be talking about Peter Navarro's conviction for contempt of Congress, one of the first lawsuits claiming Donald Trump is disqualified to be on the ballot under the 14th Amendment, and a couple of rulings over Texas's inhumane border barrier. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. And remember to go to politicon.com slash merch to buy your shirts, totes, and other goodies for the perfect you know gift if you're already shopping for the holidays or for yourself as the temperatures start to turn cooler. You can get your hoodie and be ready to go. Now, before we get into these very important topics. I wanted to ask you guys something. Uh, I needed a little help over the weekend. I normally am very um, conversational with strangers. I like to chat with people, you know, especially if if I'm traveling and I meet people or if I'm in an Uber, I chat with the driver. But this weekend, I found myself in a situation where I was in an Uber with 45 minutes with a driver who turned, you know, the polite chit chat at the beginning of the ride into this long regaling of his problems to me. He talked about this terrible <laughs> divorce he went through, how awful his ex-wife was, this grueling custody dispute. He gave me all kinds of details about the things his current girlfriend doesn't like about him, <laughs> like all of these things. Wow. And I'm sitting, hard. <laughs> I'm sitting in the back seat and I, you know, I just wanted to check my emails and like my, my business. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to be rude and say, would you mind if, if we're just quiet now? <laughs> but I also just really didn't, I wanted him to stop and the ride was so long. So you guys are my wise uh, sages Please give me some wisdom about what to do in a situation like that in the future. That'll save me. You know, I wish I could, Kim, but I knew. I would have sat there for the whole 45 minutes and let him talk. And I'll tell you, this sort of goes back to something that I learned as a young federal prosecutor. Barb, I bet you did this too. We had what was called a duty week where you handled everybody who walked in off the streets. Mm -hmm. And you would get people who walked in with some really interesting complaints that the Justice Department could not resolve for them, including people who thought that they were being bugged by space aliens or controlled by the government. And what I learned to do was just to let people talk on the theory that I might be the only contact that they would ever have with the federal government and that my patients could keep them from going ballistic and shooting up a post office or something like that. Mm. And I guess that's carried over. I just, if you know, it's like if I'm in that situation, I will let someone go on painfully. So I'm all ears for what Jill and Barb have to say. (laughs) So I'm not so nice. But before I answer Kim's question, I just want to say, 
at DOJ, we used to also have duty and people would come in. My dentist put in a recording device in my mouth and I'm being monitored all the time. And one of my colleagues made a chain of paper clips. And we said, did the just, same thing. Just, did you really put it on your <laughs> we mouth? Would, and it ground yeah. you. You'll be safe. So that was one way of uh, helping people. Wait, um, I just yeah. I just have to say this because my favorite prosecutor in my office, a former FBI agent named Anthony Joseph, whose wife listens to our podcast, um, and I think his uh, uh, his son's um, mom does too. Um, but Anthony taught me to unfold a paperclip and to keep it in my pocket on my duty week. And if someone came in and they would, you would say, look, I'm not supposed to tell you this, so don't give me up. <laughs> but if you'll keep this in your pocket, you won't have problems anymore. And you would never hear from those people again. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. <laughs> but anyway, to answer Kim's question, I'm not as nice as you are. Um, I will let people go on for a little while, partly because I find it interesting and because it might be helpful. But at some point, if I have work to do, I will say, could you mind turning off the radio, which is frequently blaring music I don't like? And I'm so sorry, but I have to get some work done before I get to my house. And people are usually pretty responsive to that. I, you know, I say it nicely and say, this was very interesting hearing from you, but I have to do this before I get to wherever I'm going. That's a yeah, good idea. you know, I'm trying to go farther in the other direction. I am often the one who, like, you know, I get on a plane and I just you put on the headphones and get working and try to tune out. And I've read this book called The Good Life that talks about how when we spend some time with strangers, uh, even those who may not want to engage with strangers, all feel better afterwards after you do. But I, I, I feel for you, Kim, because at some point it, it can be a bit much. Um, and I don't know what the right call is when you're captive like that. If you're in a taxi or an Uber, there is nowhere to go. So Jill's <laughs> advice is pretty good. Um, but I actually raised this with a couple of friends today about how do you extricate yourself from a conversation. And um, in an office setting, they had a couple of good ideas. Uh, one said, people instinctively mirror physical behavior. And she said, she's found if she stands up, the other person stands up and then like, do you just, they start to walk away. Like it just sort of <laughs> physically triggers like, well, I guess we're done here, which I thought yeah. was amazing. I might have to try that. I love um, that. Then, isn't that good? And yeah. then the other one had this, which I thought was brilliant. She said, this always works. Um, especially if the other person is male, you say, I'm sorry, I have to go to the ladies room. So the men like freak out and run away. <laughs> so that's not bad. I will confess that <clears throat> at a prior workplace, I won't say where and I won't say who. There was somebody who was chronically chatty, lovely person, but didn't know when it was time to stop and people needed to get back to work. So we all had a pact among the rest of us that if you ever saw this person, you know, sort of camped out in the chair in your office, you owed that person and you had to save them. And the save was they would call you on the phone and you'd pick up and they'd say, you owe me. And you'd say, oh yeah, yeah, I can come down to your office. Yeah, I'll be right there. Sorry, well, I got to like go. That's what so I used to do on do dates. The save. You oh, know, yes, I would, you, you know, you after a minute, you look at it on the date and you knew it was going nowhere. And I look at my phone, it's like, oh gosh, you know, my friend just told me that she had to rush my dog to the you know, hospital. Yeah, it's sort of like that being the right, although I always made it up. My secretary always did that for me. She would call, <laughs> you know, if someone came in who overstayed their welcome, she would know and she would call. And I 
got out of a lot of lengthy discussions that were unnecessary that oh, that's way. great. And, you know, may I say, although that is dishonest and it is useful, I, I you know, I try to be honest in all of my endeavors. I think there are times when it's just more kind to do that. Yeah. It is. To say, Rather stop than it. I don't want to talk to you anymore. To have a kind, face-saving way out. And I think all yeah. of those strategies are good to know. I think that's Okay, so next time I'm going to text one of y'all to call me when I'm in an Uber. And smart <laughs> say, this is my boss. I got to go. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to call you and then talk loudly and say, Kim, why did you call me and tell me the Uber driver is driving you crazy? <laughs> Remember kindness. I know you wouldn't do that. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, Peter Navarro, who is Donald Trump's former trade representative, was convicted this week for contempt of Congress for refusing to appear to testify before the House Select Committee last summer. He had spoken openly in the media about Trump's plan to overturn the election and a strategy he referred to as the Green Bay Sweep. The trial took about two days. Kim, was this verdict a surprise for you? Yeah, it really was not surprising to me because the case for obstruction of Congress is pretty straightforward. It really turns on one crucial key question, which is whether Navarro willfully defied uh, lawmakers. And in this case, I think it was pretty clear that he did. He was issued a subpoena to appear before uh, the congressional committee and also to provide documents, and he refused to do that. Now, he, of course, claimed um, an executive privilege, uh, but the judge ruled that he didn't even put forward evidence that would support this claim. Like he didn't even put forth evidence saying that Donald Trump told him not to cooperate. So yeah, no, that it took two days was not a surprise and the outcome wasn't a surprise at all either. Yeah, I think they said they, they, they called three witnesses. I surprised that they needed three. I thought one. Uh, and they were they were staffers on the House Committee. But, you know, I'm sure the questions were kind of like this. Did you serve a subpoena on, on Peter Navarro? Yes, we did. Uh, did, it, when did, it, did it give him a date to show up? Yes, it did. Did he show up? No, he didn't. Thank you. Case closed. I mean, right? Isn't that it? That's the case. Three That's witnesses. It. Why do you need three witnesses? Well, uh, Kim mentioned this idea of executive privilege, uh, which seemed to be his, you know, defense here, uh, at least uh, in his mind when he was refusing to uh, appear. Uh, Joyce, afterwards, Peter Navarro said he will prevail on appeal, on the basis of executive privilege. Uh, but as Kim said before the trial, the judge ruled that Navarro could not use executive privilege as a defense before the jury. Um, it, Navarro was once Trump's trade representative. Why is it that executive privilege was not available to him as a defense in this case? Yeah, so there are a lot of reasons. I mean, this defense was always going to fail. But the most important one 
is that Trump never asserted executive privilege. And it's the president's privilege to assert. And Trump, for whatever reason, didn't hear. So um, Navarro actually tried to argue that because Trump had asserted privilege for some earlier, very specific work he had done where he was summoned to testify, that that somehow tagged up and protected him <laughs> from testifying here. And the judge uh, just said, you know, no dice, not going to work. Um, Trump had to assert it specifically for this situation, and he didn't. But here's the kicker. Even if Trump had asserted executive privilege, Navarro would have still had to show up and answer each question individually and you know, say, yeah. I, I can answer my name. I can't answer X question because I'm invoking executive privilege. He didn't do it. This was the easiest case ever for a judge to say, sorry, you cannot argue this in front of the jury. Yeah, I saw that um, his lawyers um, argued that in closing argument, something like, the government never even said where he was on the date you know, in question. <laughs> and, the response, and the reply was, it doesn't matter where he was. The only thing that matters is where he wasn't. <laughs> and he wasn't in front of Congress to testify. I thought that was, uh, that was great. Well, Jill, let me ask you about kind of what happens next. So um, Navarro joins Steve Bannon now as having been convicted at trial for refusing to obey a subpoena that was issued by the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Bannon remains free. He got sentenced to, I think it was four months, but um, the judge said he didn't have to report to prison while his case was on appeal, which is highly unusual. Uh, And now Navarro's sentencing has been set for a date in January. Do you think Navarro will get to remain free, too, while his case is on appeal? It's a great question, and I don't think he will for a couple of reasons. First of all, Bannon, um, who got four months and a $6,500 fine for two counts, uh, testimony and documents, did invoke uh, executive privilege, even though he wasn't actually at the time even an employee. Um, But the judge said that he had raised some serious legal issues and might prevail on appeal. And so when you, there are three steps to winning on a motion not to be put in jail pending appeal. And one of them is that you have a substantial chance of prevailing on appeal. I think in Navarro's case, there is no chance that he will prevail. The judge was very clear on the fact that there was no evidence that would show that executive privilege had been invoked by Donald Trump. And so, and as Joyce pointed out, he just didn't even show up. So even if there had been, he'd still be guilty for not showing up. So I think the chances of him winning on appeal eliminate the chance of his being not incarcerated during his appeal. Yeah. And, you know, I am never a fan of this idea of Trump judges, Obama judges, all that sort of stuff. But I thought this ruling in the Bannon case, allowing him to stay out while appeal is pending, was really outrageous. It's a real outlier. I mean, normally you go to to prison and, uh, you know, you handle your appeal. If you win, then you get out, but you you go and serve. Um, And the judge in that case is a Trump appointee, Rudy Nichols, or Mick Nichols, I guess is his name. I I don't like to cast dispersions that way, but I I think that decision's just wrong. Now, I guess the idea is if you're serving a four-month sentence, it'll probably be over by the time your appeal is heard. And so you can't undo that. But that happens. That's what happens to most defendants. Yeah, I mean, that's not a factor. I think you're right, Barb. Yeah. And you've raised an interesting point about how long it's taken. 
it's been on appeal for about a year. And so, of course, his sentence would have been over. I think he meets the qualifications. He posted bond, so he's not going to flee. They, the other part, I'm not so sure about, you have to show that you are not a danger to the community. And I would say that <laughs> Bannon is definitely a danger to the community with his false statements on his podcast and things. So I don't know if he would have prevailed on that one. But um, the judge really made his ruling there saying, you know, there's, you've raised significant legal questions. I just don't think anyone's going to say that Navarro raised significant legal questions. Yeah. Well, um, it'll be interesting to see if he gets treated the same way or differently. Um, Kim, remember back when um, the January 6th committee was hearing testimony, they also referred two other witnesses to DOJ for prosecution, for contempt, for refusing to come testify, former chief of staff Mark Meadows and his deputy Dan Scavino. Uh, The committee wanted them prosecuted for contempt, for failing to show up, and DOJ declined to charge them. Why do you suppose they were treated differently from Navarro and Bannon? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. DOJ didn't tell me. Um, But (laughs) if I had to guess... That never stops us from speculating. Come on. (laughs) A couple things come to mind. First and foremost, we have to remember that um, historically, there have been other times when Congress has referred, uh, made criminal referrals to the DOJ, and the vast majority of the time, the DOJ ignores them, right? The DOJ doesn't have to take up um, a criminal prosecution referral from Congress if it doesn't want to. So it, it's not terribly unusual that they did not bring charges in this case. Also, as we've talked about many times, bringing a criminal case is very fact-specific to the individual. So what I think more than likely happened is that prosecutors took a look, took a look at this case, took a look at what was there, and for whatever reason decided they were not certain they could get a conviction if they brought that claim, and so they decided not to. Also, there's option number three, which we don't know, but it's speculation. They could be cooperating. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It's very possible that if they were facing criminal liability that could have been paused as they cooperate and we see what the outcome of that is. I am very, very, um, specifically with Meadows, I am very, very interested to see at the end of the day what happens there. I don't know what he's he doing. He is not cooperating. I will bet you a Detroit so? hot dog he is not <laughs> cooperating. <laughs> ah! Yeah, I right. thought so too until he got charged in, in RICO and then he's testified and all that. Yes. Yeah, no. But, but couldn't that just be a little bit of leverage? Like if no. he was, tr- if, uh-uh. if no? he was cooperating, he blew his deal when he took the stand mm. in Georgia. Yeah, that's, that's interesting what I think too. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, all right. Yeah, I don't know. That one's really, um, really curious. Hmm. Well, Joyce, let me ask you about one other issue for appeal. You're our appellate specialist here. Um, Navarro says uh, he moved for a mistrial and the judge denied it. But Navarro moved on the grounds that jurors may have been influenced by uh, anti-Navarro protesters who are outside the courthouse. Uh, did you see at one point he tried to snatch away a, a protester's sign? I forget what it said, like you're a liar yeah. or something like that. And he missed. <laughs> he like, tried to grab her sign and she snatched it away and he kind of missed and just kept talking. Um, but what about this idea that jurors may have been influenced by protesters? Do you think there's an issue there for appeal? Nope, um, I do not. <laughs> I think, you know, poor, poor Mr. Navarro, from that moment in time, did you guys see this? I was actually 
Um, waiting to do TV, they had asked me to comment after this interview where Ari Melber is interviewing mm-hmm. Navarro, and he essentially talks about the Green Bay sweep, and a very surprised Ari Melber says, you know you're describing a coup. And it was early on when people were still really hesitant to use the coup language, and, and Navarro was, you know, I, I'm shocked. I'm stunned to find out that there was gambling going on in Casablanca. Um, from that moment, Navarro has just had a string of loser arguments that he's tried to put forward, and this one isn't any different. Navarro would have to show that those protesters influenced the outcome of the case with the jury, and that's just not happening. Protesters show up at a lot of cases for a lot of courthouses. Judges know how to give juries instructions on ignoring these sorts of extraneous disturbances, and in the absence of evidence that the jury was unable to this, this is going no place on appeal, but as a practical matter, I don't know that this happened in this case. Typically, judges are very good in working with the U.S. Marshal to make sure that jurors are going in and out of the courthouse in ways that actually mean they are not exposed to this sort of a protest. It's something that good judges are very savvy about. Just no reason to believe that there's anything going on here that benefits Navarro on appeal. Yeah, and of course, you know, it it just delays the day of reckoning. He could get, if he were to get a new trial, it's it's hard to imagine it would come out any differently the second time around, right? The, the questions are the same. Did he show up for, for the, the subpoena? No, you know, case closed. Um, Jill, let me just ask you one last thing. Um, Navarro is complaining that this prosecution is the result of the weaponization of government to attack political enemies. Um, but of course, we've seen criminal prosecution of presidential administration officials before. During Watergate, a number of Nixon administration officials went to prison. And I think, you know, it's easy to take for granted what happened at Watergate because it's now, you know, more than 50 years ago. There are a lot of listeners who may not have a fresh memory of that, but some very significant figures went to prison in that case. Can you remind us of some of the people who went to prison and on what charges? Absolutely. But I also want to say that the idea that this was weaponization of government Mm -hmm. pure projection, because Mm -hmm. if anybody (laughs) weaponized it, it was the Trump administration. So that's a ridiculous argument. But yeah, I mean, we unfortunately have criminals who sometimes get elected to office and sometimes are appointed to office, and they therefore are indicted and often convicted. And in Watergate, there was a huge number, aside from the president who was forced to resign, and the vice president who resigned, but because of a scandal of his own making in Maryland, not because of Watergate, there were 40 government officials who were indicted or jailed. And they included the chief of staff to the president, whose name was Haldeman at the time. It included the White House consul to the president, John Dean. It included the attorney general, John Mitchell. It included employees, White House staff, uh, some of the most colorful characters were Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy, who you could not make up. You would find them totally unbelievable if you made them up as they actually were. Um, Colson, who was a special counsel to the president, and again, pretty much a, a, an unbelievable character. The security director for the campaign um, went to jail. Uh, Mardian, who was an assistant attorney general, is often forgotten. He ended up His lawyer got sick, and he moved for a severance. It was denied. He was tried with an excellent substitute lawyer who was from the same firm, 
but his conviction was later reversed because he didn't have the lawyer of his choice. Um, Ooh, there's so, a good cautionary tale for what's going on in this case, huh? Yeah, oh, good it, point. It, it, it is for sure. But anyway, there were a ton of others who were tried for crimes, for acts they can, did themselves, not for words, not for anything else. And it wasn't weaponization. It was accountability for crimes. And I think that's all that's going on here. As you said, Barb, this is a very simple case. Did you get a subpoena? Did you show up? No. Yes to the subpoena. No to I didn't show up. And that's the end of the case. So it's perfectly clear that he violated the rules. This week, there is a fascinating development about the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And I want to start by reading just exactly what the applicable language of that section is. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States— shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Well, obviously that hasn't happened. So now there are two major articles, one by Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law and Judge Ludic, a renowned conservative, and another by two professors, one from the University of Chicago and one from St. Thomas Law, both Federalists and both very conservative, who have concluded that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is self-executing and means that Trump can and should be barred from any ballot without any need for him to be convicted of insurrection. So, Barb, tell us about that theory and the legal support for it. Yeah. Um, so as you point out, you know, this is coming from people uh, across the political spectrum. But um, the idea that the 14th Amendment was passed following the Civil War, but there's nothing about it that says it relates only to the Civil War. It just says that you, you can't hold any office after you previously took an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution and then have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. And so um, I think they do an effective job of beating back this idea that it only relates to the Civil War. Or the other argument you hear is that it's not self-executing. That is, there must be a separate finding in a criminal case or an impeachment uh, before you can say the person engaged in rebellion or insurrection. And their theory is that it is self-executing, that um, there, there needs to be some sort of finding, but it can be done by, say, a secretary of state or someone in a proceeding to keep them off the ballot. Um, there is some contrary argument though, that is out there. For example, Michael Mukasey, who's a former judge and a former attorney general of the United States, has written that um, even if that's all true, that's all well and good, uh, he argues that the president of the United States is not covered by this because the president is not, quote, an officer of the United States. They take a different oath, the, the president does, from other officers of the United States. And so this may apply to members of Congress, 
but it does not apply to the president himself. So it's an untested legal theory. I think there's one case I'm aware of where someone has been removed from the ballot. It was a county commissioner in New Mexico who did participate in the events of January 6th, and uh, he was challenged and removed from the ballot in New Mexico. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, this has never really been used, and so there's some uh, conflicting theories as to whether this applies, but I think there's a sound legal theory that says, you know, what Donald Trump did on January 6th should disqualify him for from the White House, and so I guess we'll have to see how that shakes out. Um, in in practice, and I think it's going to take a lawsuit like one recently filed to bring this to a head. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go next, because the, based on the theory of these four eminent scholars, six Colorado voters aided by the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington have filed suit asking their Secretary of State not to put Trump's name on the primary or general election ballot. And there's talk about doing the same in Florida, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Ohio, and Wisconsin. So Joyce, talk about that Colorado lawsuit, including the relief sought there. Right. So the theory in this Colorado first of its kind case is precisely what Barb has laid out, this theory that the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from being on the ballot. And the lawsuit got filed in state court, state district court in Denver, with the help of a a watchdog group called CRU, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They're known for doing excellent legal work in these kind of areas. And the relief that they're asking for is that the Colorado Secretary of State not put Trump's name on the Republican primary ballot. He just doesn't get to show up. They've also asked the court to rule that Trump is disqualified in order to end any uncertainty uh, over that issue. So it is a pretty stark presentation of the possible relief here. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting to follow this one. We'll stay on top of it. But Kim, um, Barb's already mentioned the Michael Mukasey argument about whether the president is an officer of the U.S., but there are some other arguments against using it. Um, and it's, they sound technical, but I know you can explain them, standing and ripeness. Yes. So we've talked about some of these procedural issues before. And uh, during uh, a press call with the attorneys from Crew, as well as some of the attorneys, the local attorneys from Colorado, um, I, they discussed the issues both of standing and ripeness, which I presented to them. So when it comes to standing, um, what that means is in order to bring a case, the the plaintiff, the challenger in the case has to have some skin in the game. They have to show that they are entitled to bring this action because they've been affected in some way. And the attorneys pointed to the Colorado statute itself, uh, which gives voters the ability to challenge the eligibility of a candidate on the ballot. And they say that that statute specifically gives them standing to bring this lawsuit. I think it's a pretty solid argument here. So I would be surprised if standing is uh, a basis for tossing this lawsuit. I think the ripeness issue is a little fuzzier. So ripeness means a a court can't just step in and make a ruling, even if somebody challenges um, 
is challenging something like Donald Trump's eligibility. It has to be an actual case in controversy, meaning something happened and therefore a court needs to come in and decide this controversy between parties. It can't be something that could happen. So if some, if you're in a contract with someone and they say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to abide by this contract. You can't sue them then just saying, oh, they, they said they're going to breach the contract. The court would throw it out saying, well, the contract hasn't been breached yet. You have to wait for the contract actually to be breached. It's the same principle here. But what they say to that is they again point to the Colorado statute. And in the language, it gives uh, challengers up to five days after a candidate is certified on the ballot to bring a challenge. But it does not specify the starting point that that timer runs. And so they say because of that, they can bring the challenge at any time up until that five days after uh, they're put on the ballot. I think that that's fuzzy. I mean, I think that a court could very well say, okay, inherent in that is the idea that they actually have to be on the ballot first. So maybe that limits you to five days before between their certified and the, and the end of that statutory provision. But it doesn't mean that you can sue them way ahead of time. I, who knows? I think that's an open question on um, the ripeness issue. But I think courts also realize they're going to have to deal with this. They're going to have to start making rulings on this case. So it won't put it off forever. It may delay it a little bit. And the minute that Donald Trump is certified on that ballot, they're going to, the second that he's certified on that ballot, they're just going to bring the challenge again. And, and Joyce, are there any political arguments against doing this? Yeah. I mean, I think this is the, the argument. We're already a very divided country. In the absence, and Barb makes this great point, by the way, she talks about the New Mexico case where um, someone, not the president, obviously is disqualified. And that was because they had a statutory provision that made it possible to do that. You know, with the 14th Amendment, um, there is this mechanism that says Congress can pass laws to enable it. Congress has not done that. And so I think that you can make the argument that in the absence of a conviction or even a charge, right? Two prosecutors have had the op the option. Neither one has charged Trump with insurrection, that it would be inappropriate to do this from a political point of view, because it would be such a, you know, such a way of removing the issue from the hands of the voters. So I'm not sure that I buy that argument, but I think that that's the argument that can be made here. And I wrote a column about this. I'll put it in the show notes that I, I don't think that it means that a case couldn't or shouldn't be made. But I think that the real way to eradicate the threat to democracy that Donald Trump presents is for the voters to indisputably reject him at the polls on election day. And I fear, given everything that we have seen so far, including violence erupting, that well, A, I fear that if it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will issue a decision that is very bad law. Um, I, I am not certain that the Supreme Court will rule that he is disqualified. I think that's the number one biggest uh, thing. But I think regardless of which way the Supreme Court rules, it could tear our nation apart. We already have citizens who distrust our institutions, both on each side of the political spectrum and the middle, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's Congress, whether it's Trump, whether it's his acolytes. And I worry that a Supreme Court decision, this won't be like Bush v. Gore, 
where it's controversial for a little while, then everybody moves on. I think it'll be much, much worse, especially with Trump continuously fomenting his lies about election fraud, attacking these institutions. I'm afraid of bloodshed. You know, I was just talking to my parents about how I used to ask them, wow, what was it like to live through the civil rights era? That seems so crazy in retrospect. And now I'm like, oh, it, it's like now. It's like right now. We're living through it. And Never everything mind. is happening. The injustices happening in real time and, and the lack of accountability. The only thing that's different is the assassinations. And I, my father said, well, you know, yeah. I hate to say this, but just wait. That could come too. Yeah. And I'm worried about that. Yeah, I agree with you, Kim, on the restraint part. Um, you know, I am certainly no fan of Donald Trump. And I think that he's been a terrible uh, uh curse on her country. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of like what a prosecutor thinks about in terms of uh, using power. Can this be done? And that's a legal question. And, you know, we'll have scholars work through it and decide what can be done. But another, the, the more important question often is, should this be done? And, you know, in, in research for my book, I, I read this other book called How Democracies Die. Um, and one of the things it talks about is the need for government actors to use tolerance and restraint. Just because you can grab power and use power in a certain way doesn't always mean you should. Sometimes it means restraining that use of power, you know, compromising in legislation, um, withholding a veto, uh, giving somebody a confirmation vote when there's a nomination from the opposing party. Um, that sort of mutual tolerance uh, and accommodation and respect is what allows our government to keep on going. And so uh, on the one hand, um, you know, we have this tool, maybe we should use it to protect the, the, the good of our democracy. But I, I do fear that, like you, that the use of power without restraint could have a terrible backlash effect that could cause, you know, every president's going to have his opponents trying to find ways to impeach him and get him out of office and use other techniques in the Constitution that's really going to up upend our democracy. Of course, we're seeing that right now anyway from the other side. But um, it, one question that came up a lot from uh, people on social media contacting me was, is there a difference between a Secretary of State judging the age or birthplace, which are both qualifying factors to run for president, um, and uh, them judging whether a candidate aided or comforted or participated in an insurrection. And I'm just wondering what you all think. It, it bothered me a little when I thought about it, but then I thought about, you know, normally you'd think a birth certificate is the answer, except yeah. if it's Trump against Obama. So even that's not a clear-cut fact. So what do you think? Yeah, I think that that's a valid concern, Jill. I think in this case, and let's keep in mind the the lawsuit that was brought in Colorado. This wasn't just this didn't just come up last week. The, the attorneys working on this have been working on this for almost two years. They've been working on this since January sixth. They chose Colorado carefully in part because under that law, uh, they say the Secretary of State is required to evaluate the constitutional eligibility of every presidential candidate. So what they're essentially saying is they can't ignore this. You can't put him on the ballot. They, they can't ignore this. The 14th Amendment says he can't be on it. So I think that's one reason we're seeing this happening in this state here. They're claiming that it is different than just saying, oh, you know, 
just minding your P's and Q's and making sure everything is okay, that this is an absolute disqualifier and that the Secretary of State has no choice but to exclude him from this ballot. I think in other states, depending on how those uh, laws are worded, it will be uh, perhaps more difficult. Um, But, you know, I think this is, as always, in a case of first impression like this, and when you have 50 states with potentially 50 different rules, this can be complicated. And, and one last question is, I, I, when I read the language of Section 3, the last sentence says, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability from ever holding office again. Is that a possibility that both Houses would vote that way and save Donald Trump and allow him to run? Both Not houses can't even Senate. pass a budget. <laughs> like, yeah, I can't imagine. Not two thirds. No. They couldn't no. agree two thirds for anything. No. But I just had to raise that because it sort of stands in starkness when you look at that language saying, well, you know, even if you were a traitor to the country, you still could run if two thirds of Congress thinks so. No. Two-thirds of Congress can't agree to wish their mama a happy birthday. I mean, (laughs) honestly, they just can't seem to get it together. So, uh... By now, I think everyone has seen the pictures of the big red spinning boys that the state of Texas placed in the Rio Grande River to prevent migrants from crossing that river. It's the border between the United States and Mexico. It flows through Texas, and Texas took it upon itself to do that. You may have seen reports of injuries that migrants have suffered. Um, Tired people trying to cross into the United States at the end of a long journey have been snagged. Kids have suffered puncture wounds. There are even some allegations that people have died in the river. Texas, on the other hand, claims that they are necessary for border control. So the Rio Grande is a navigable waterway of the United States. That's a legal term of art. Barb, can you start us off by discussing the legal significance of that term and how it formed the basis for the lawsuit that DOJ brought to challenge what Texas and Governor Abbott are doing in Texas? Yeah. So, you know, we've talked on the show before about POTUS as president of the United States and FLOTUS is the first lady of the United States and V. POTUS is the vice president of the United States. SCOTUS is the Supreme Court of the United States. And we talked about WOTUS uh, as the waters of the United States. This is the navigable waters of the United States. So I guess that's no WOTUS, uh, <laughs> the navigable waters of the United States. Um, and there's a legal definition. They're waters that are used or may be used to transport interstate or foreign commerce. And that is what makes it federal and not state. Um, The Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. So if you put a bunch of stuff in the navigable waters, you're interfering with interstate or foreign commerce. And so that was the basis of the Justice Department saying, Texas, you can't put stuff in the navigable waters. That's only Congress may do that. So get them out of there immediately. And that was the basis of the lawsuit. 
You know, it's really interesting. This issue of what qualifies as navigable waterways of the United States has been heavily litigated. There's a Supreme Court plurality decision that doesn't help very much. Um, I've handled cases like that in Alabama. You know, what do you do when you've got something that's a river in the winter, but it slows down to a trickle in the summer? Is it really a navigable waterway? None of that is relevant in this case, because if ever anything was a navigable waterway of the United States, it was the Rio Grande River. So that's not the problem in this case. Um, Jill, on Wednesday, a federal judge ruled. How did he come down and how did he rule on the governor's claims in this case that he had to place these barriers to keep migrants from entering the country? So, you know, you're correct on all scores, but there is also a statute, the Rivers and Harbors Act, which says that the federal government's authorization is necessary before you can construct anything in navigable waters. And there's no question that this meets the definition. And, you know, just because I like to surprise you on every episode, um, as general counsel... Oh, no, counsel, you've uh, been down there. <laughs> No, I actually, well, yeah, I have been, but no, it's just that I was general counsel of the Army, which means I supervise the lawyers for the Corps of Engineers. Yeah. And that's who has to give the authorization to allow any construction on navigable waters. So it falls within my past job description. And here it's. Jill had no WOTUS on her resume. I love it. (laughs) I didn't, but I should have. Maybe I'll have to add that. (laughs) <laughs> and also, I was the the general counsel for the Panama Canal Corporation during the negotiations to give back the Panama Canal. You gave I back the Panama Canal? I didn't know That's it was amazing. a mill who gave it back. Well, I only was a lawyer assigned to that, but um, we had other people doing the actual negotiations. But anyway, so you're the, distancing yourself from giving up the Panama Canal is what <laughs> I noticed. Yeah, I detected I am, that too, Joyce. Yeah. I am, although I loved visiting there. It was a terrific place to be. Um, So the Corps of Engineers would have had to give some kind of uh, permit to allow them to do this. And of course, Abbott did not ask for permission. In fact, he made a big point in his arguments of, I'm not asking for permission. And the judge said, well, unfortunately, you should have because the law requires (laughs) that you do that. The judge was quite clear on that and, you know, ruled that he should remove them by September 15th and never construct any more, although that has been appealed and the there's been a stay on that. Yeah, so um, let's get into the stay because this is the issue of appeal. Kim, we're assuming um, that this uh, appeal will now be heard by the full Fifth Circuit. Can you talk about what that process is going to look like and what you expect will happen in light of what Jill has just mentioned about the court entering a stay? Yes, I can. First, I want to say Jill Winebanks is a national treasure. I just, I just <laughs> it bears repeating. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yes. Yeah, so, despite the fact that the district court judge, as we pointed out, said that the Department of Justice's lawsuit would likely succeed on the merits, we have to underscore that in order to get the stay in the first place, a judge has to find that they're likely to succeed in the end on the merits. Despite that, just one day later, 
the New Orleans-based federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, granted Texas's request to halt the temporary injunction, meaning that they can leave those awful barriers in place. They did so without any sort of justification, without an opinion, without giving any further details why. And uh, as of the time we are recording this podcast, no hearing has been set. But considering that Um, September deadline that Joyce already mentioned, I think that that schedule probably will be set pretty expeditiously. So we will uh, get more sunlight from there. But yes, it would be appealed to the full Fifth Circuit, first of all. But I think given what we've already seen a day later, we can maybe guess what might happen at the Fifth Circuit. They're a very conservative uh, circuit, and it's a reason why things like this keep happening in places like Texas, not just because uh, they are one of the uh, states with a water border, so does California, and don't see a lot of these claims, uh, a lot of these um, barriers being set up there. I was just going to say, one day we should do an entire podcast on the many sins of the Fifth Circuit. I mean, it really (laughs) has become predictably bad. It galls me. My father-in-law used to sit on this circuit before the Fifth was split into the Fifth and the Eleventh. And it used to be a circuit where other circuits would read their cases and rely on them, and not anymore. Yeah, it's really it's really something else. So I don't expect much from the Fifth Circuit when it is appealed there. But when it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think it seems pretty destined to do so, um, I think that it is going to be a lot different. I mean, the, when it comes to the Novotis um, <laughs> and the proper federalism avenues that states have to abide by, uh, the federalism rules that states have to abide by. The Supreme Court up to now, again, I don't, I'm on record saying I don't trust the Supreme Court and who knows what will happen. I make no predictions. But they have been pretty clear that you cannot, that states cannot overstep their federalist bounds when it comes to things that are squarely within the purview of federal government and being in control of navigable what I, 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 I'm going to blame it on my cold. I can't. <laughs> Today I, I came back from vacation with a bit of a non-COVID cold and it's affecting my brain function. Um, waters that can be navigated. There you go. It's <laughs> always a way. That works. This so really is you know, Kim, When you mention what's within federal power, there's also another argument, which is foreign relations is clearly the federal government's authority, not the states. Yes. And Mexico has complained about this interference with the river that adjoins both countries. So it seems to me there's another argument here, which is, you know, foreign affairs trumps everything else, and Abbott can't interfere with that. Although he has argued that there's a treaty with Mexico that specifically says that it's okay to put something in the river um, and that they're not a deterrent to navigation. Yeah, I, no. I don't think that's at all <laughs> yeah, no. an yes, accurate rendition for, of fact. Foreign relation, governing waters, immigration, these are all federal responsibilities right. and you know, Abbott knew when he did this that he had no business doing it. Um, and I would hope that the U.S. Supreme Court will find that.
And now we have come to what is truly, truly our most favorite part of every episode, which is answering your questions. We love it because your questions are always so, so good. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. If you are on TweetX or whatever it's called, you can use hashtag sistersinlaw. And if you're on threads, you can send us a question, but make sure that you tag either uh, sistersinlaw.podcast or one of the four sisters or all of us uh, to make sure that we see it because the hashtag doesn't work quite the same. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our thread feeds throughout the week and we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Denny in Clearwater, Florida, who asks, is it proper for the Fulton County Grand Jury to reveal the names of people who were not indicted by District Attorney Fonnie Willis? Barb, we just got the news of that uh, unsealed uh, document a little bit before we taped. What do you think? Well, on the one hand, this is proper under Georgia law. When you have this special grand jury, they're required to submit this report. It's required to be public. Fonnie Willis was successful in keeping it under seal while she was waiting, you know, preparing and working on the indictment that indicted 19 people. And now her reason for keeping it sealed has passed. And so the judge revealed it. And some pretty amazing names on that list, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, uh, former Georgia Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, Michael Flynn, uh, Trump lawyers Cleta Mitchell and Lynn Wood and Boris Epstein. I mean, those are some big, big names of people who are not indicted. And so part of me is really intrigued by that as, you know, an avid follower of all of this drama surrounding the January 6th events. I'm really eager to know that. But on the other hand, boy, as a former federal prosecutor where uh, an investigation that ended without charges never saw the light of day and the public was not supposed to know about it because it did not result in an indictment uh, in an effort to protect the reputation of the person that their identity was never revealed. So I'm kind of conflicted about it. And and if anything, it, it feels... It kind of feels wrong to me. Uh, I know Joyce and Jill, you were sharing some some similar thoughts, I think, right? Absolutely. I am appalled that people would be revealed to have been recommended for indictment when they weren't indicted. I believe the federal rule is a much, much better way to protect people who aren't indicted. And we don't know if they weren't indicted because the standard at the investigative level is probable cause. But the standard for indictment would be beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the prosecutors may have decided that there wasn't enough evidence for that standard. Or maybe they're cooperating. Or who knows what the reasons are. But in any event, I think it's really a bad thing to have names revealed like this. But you're right. Under Georgia law, it's not only okay, it is the practice. Our next question comes from Michael who asks, would a shutdown put trials on hold or otherwise interfere with DOJ operations? Joyce, what would a government shutdown mean for federal prosecutors? 
So good news here, it will have absolutely no impact on prosecutions. For one thing, Jack Smith's budget as a special counsel comes from a different line item, so not impacted by shutdown. But even as a general rule, and and Barb and I and Jill, I bet you two, we've been through multiple shutdowns. I've done preparations for shutdowns in cases where they didn't actually happen. And a very painful part of that process is that you have to designate some of your employees as essential and others as non-essential. And the essential ones, and and I always hated doing that because I believed that everybody in my office was essential, but the whole point of the designation is essential employees continue to work during a shutdown, whether they're getting paid or not. And that is essentially everyone who is touching a criminal case. Because that work is dictated by the Speedy Trial Act clock, you've got to keep going. So uh, shutdowns do not impact DOJ's criminal function. And our final question comes from Sisters Chris and Mary, who ask, could you explain how the Fifth Amendment prohibition against self-incrimination in criminal trials might protect Donald Trump in the civil trials in which he is a defendant? Is there any circumstance where he could be compelled to take the stand or provide information? Jill, what do you think? So it does vary depending on the jurisdiction you're in. But basically, you do have a Fifth Amendment right, even in a civil case. And so he could invoke that. But there is a difference. In a civil case, you can draw an adverse inference from that invocation of the Fifth Amendment. And so the jury could be instructed that they can assume that the answer would have been contrary to the position being advocated by the person who invokes it. So that would mean it's not really much protection. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kim Atkins-Store. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com. You can X them for next week's show using hashtag sisters in law or you can tag us on threads please support this week's sponsors olive and june hello fresh helix and thrive cosmetics you can find their links in the show notes please support them as they really help make this show happen and go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our hoodies now that the temperatures i hope will stop dropping uh our shirts totes and other goodies and to keep up with us every week follow hashtag sisters in law on apple podcasts or wherever you get your pods and please give us a five-star review because it really helps other people to find the show see you next week with another episode hashtag Sisters-in-law. Kim, you doing anything fun next week? I am. I'm actually going to see Duran Duran, which a band <laughs> that I have loved for 40-ish years. I, I mean, I used to sign my name in my notebooks in middle school, uh, Kim Taylor. I mean, John, because there were three band members named Taylor. So I have to specify John Taylor. I just knew I was going to marry him. So I'm excited. Did he have the biggest hair of all of the Duran Duran? This wasn't that guys. big. I think some of the other, I think <laughs> Nick Rhodes had the biggest hair, but he did have big hair. They were big hair guys. But he yeah. still, they were a big hair guy. But he's not the biggest, but he's still. Which song do you, are you looking forward to singing along to most? Um, I think Rio. Either Save a Prayer. No, Save a Prayer. Save a Prayer. Yeah. How's that one go? 
Save a prayer till the morning after. That's a good one. We we when I was little, we used to have lighters, which is a terribly dangerous idea. So now, <laughs> so now I have to turn on my uh, you know, my phone light, my phone flashlight. But I'm ready. I will be ready for it. save a prayer. So it'll That's be a lot fun. of fun.